I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the letter to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to read the entire chapter. The title of mine and my translation is Do Not Neglect Salvation. Hebrews chapter 2. And here we hear God's word as follows. <clears throat> Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. For he, is, he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. <coughs> but now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly I will sing praise to you, and again I will put my trust in him, and again... Here I am, and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who, <coughs> through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted thus far. And then if you would turn with me in the back of your Psalter hymnal to the section on the Catechism, Lord's Day 6, Lord's Day 6, question and answer 16, 17, 18, and 19, you find that on page 874 in the back of your Psalter hymnal, page 874. I remind you that this is your confession of faith as it is mine. So then, question, why must the mediator be a true and righteous man? 
because God's justice requires that human, that human nature which has sinned must pay for sin, but a sinner could never pay for others. Why must he be true God? So that by the power of his divine divinity, he might bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Then who is this mediator and God at the same time, a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who was given to us for our complete deliverance and righteousness. How do you come to know this? The Holy Gospel tells me. God himself began to reveal the gospel already in paradise. Later he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and the prophets and foreshadowed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And finally he fulfilled it through his own beloved son. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word and the summary of that word as we find it in the creeds of confessions of the church, may God add his blessing to the hearing the reading and the preaching once again this afternoon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, gather here with me this afternoon. The Bible tells us there is only one God and only one mediator between God and man. Jesus Christ is the way, the only way, or if you will, he is the only road. A road, of course, is a means by which we can get from one place to another. So using that metaphor, Jesus is the only road whereby Man can come to heaven and to God who lives there. There is no other way. Any other religious road, no matter how sincere, leads away from God and to eternal death. It ought not to surprise us then that this teaching is unacceptable to many men and women today, for it gives saving credit to no other religion. It tolerates nothing else. Christianity is exclusive and tolerates no other faith. And it is, of course, for that reason that Christianity itself is becoming intolerable in our compromising climate of toleration. We ought not to be surprised if in time Christianity itself will no longer be tolerated simply because it refuses to tolerate and embrace other faiths. Our culture places a premium on toleration, and so eventually the narrow-minded claim of the Christian church that Christ is the only way, the only way that men and women can be saved, will itself no longer be tolerated. We can see clear evidence of that toleration in our own country and in our own culture today. I remember well, while serving a church in British Columbia, I was privileged to begin a very active and effective, productive prison ministry. We had two very large federal prisons in our small community, and I was in those institutions at least twice a week working with some of the inmates. Some of their wives attended our worship services, and Corey and I would try to minister to them as well. And my work in those prisons did not go unnoticed. I was soon invited to become part of what was called the Citizens Advisory Committee. And I sat in on meetings where many things concerning the day-to-day -day treatment of the inmates was discussed and decided. I was also trained by Corrections Canada to be their official spokesman in the local newspapers. 
And finally, one day, Corrections Canada called me to a meeting where they offered me the position as chaplain in their prison. And oh, how desperately I wanted that job. But it was not an option I could consider. You see, the very first question I was asked was, would I be able to allow every inmate to believe in the God of their choice? In other words, would I allow the Jew to seek salvation apart from Christ? Could I allow the Native American to continue in their sweat lodges? Could I allow the Muslim to believe in Muhammad? And when I then said that the Bible says that there is no other name under heaven by which men could be saved, and when I then explained that I would work for the salvation of the men's souls in that name alone, the interview was over. It was explained that such exclusiveness was an infringement upon the basic human rights of the inmate, and therefore my position was contrary to the Canadian Charter of Rights. And although the decision disappointed me, it did not surprise me. It ought not to surprise you. As I said earlier, Christianity is systematically being ultimately outlawed by legislation in our country. But given the fact that scripture teaches that Jesus is the only way to heaven, isn't it tragic that every day we meet men and women who expect to be saved without any real knowledge of or commitment to Jesus Christ? So many people are totally unconcerned about their eternal destiny. They are convinced of their eternal salvation even apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. For as they will tell you, they've always tried to be good and they fully expect to be saved for their good living. And when you then press them, they will tell you they are not church members precisely because of their own honesty. They will tell you, oh, I may not be perfect, but I do try and at least I am honest and I'm not a hypocrite as most people in the church. In fact, according to them, it was their honesty that prevented them from joining a church in the first place. For in their view, the church is nothing but a gathering of hypocrites. And we must not fear to tell them honestly that their way is not the way of life, but the way of death. Their honesty and integrity in their own eyes will serve them to no avail in matters of salvation. In fact, the opposite is true. He who is wise in his own eyes is a fool, and fools cannot and will not inherit the kingdom. But there are also thousands, perhaps millions of people who still seek their salvation in religious life. We see them and we hear them every day. Ironically, we see such people within the church. Look at me, Lord, look at me. I'm a church member in good standing and I attend regularly, twice even. I see the world, Lord, I see them avoiding the church, but not me, Lord. For me, attendance is a second nature. I go all the time, Lord, every Sunday twice. Aren't I good, Lord? Then also there are myriads of people who believe that rites and ceremonies are the way to go. They sprinkle water, they dip, they immerse, they burn candles, they burn incense, they say solemn litanies, and they follow stirring liturgies until their, until their minds are numb. They make pilgrimages, participate in programs, sing songs, pay their money, but the Lord says, a pox on you and your house. There's only one way, says the Bible, and that way is Jesus Christ. 
The moment the church abandons the exclusive and narrow-minded view that there is only one faith and only one way, then the church has lost the faith. And she then has nothing to say either to those within and much less to the world walking outside. She has then degenerated into a silent church and a silent church cannot witness to a world walking in darkness. Our catechism points us the way this afternoon to an understanding of the only one only way. And I want to administer God's word to you using as my theme, the only mediator. We will hear of what he needs to be. We will hear who he is. And finally, we will ponder together how he can be known. So the one only mediator, what he needs to be, who he is, and how he can be known. You will remember, I hope, the last Lord's Day when we were together ended with teaching us that we must seek a mediator who was truly human and truly righteous. The first question this afternoon would have, would have us consider, why is that so? For what reason does the deliverer need to be human? The reason is to be sought and found in sin. Man has rebelled against God. Man has turned against God already in the garden. And man has transgressed against God. Man and God are alienated. And that alienation was caused by man himself. Man has fallen away from God, and man is responsible for the brokenness, and now God comes to man and demands of him that, say, that that same human nature that has sinned should pay for sin. The justice of God insists that man has sinned and man must pay. To renegotiate the terms of God's original decree would do violence to God's own just nature, and consequently, in order for someone to pay for man's sin, he must first of all be truly man. He must be like man in all things. In fact, he must be born of that same human nature. And it's for that reason now that we learned last time that it could be not be another, another newly created creature. Such a created creature would not be part of the original human nature. He would not be of man's generation. No, the mediator whom we seek must be flesh of our flesh, blood of our blood. He must, be, he must be one of us. And only then can God require of him that the demands of God's justice be met for the sins of men. In other words, in other words, if we are to find a substitute, if we are to find a substitute to pay for our sin, he must be one of us meaning born of a woman and placed under the same law of God. But even more is required of him. You see, no man, no man born of a woman is able to fulfill God's law. Remember now that all men without exception are conceived and born in sin. And a man with sin of his own would still be required, would still be required to pay for his own sin. So something more would be necessary for him in order for him to deliver other men. What more than must he be? Well, we read it in the answer. He must be truly man and he must be a truly righteous man. What does that mean? Well, simply put, he needs to be someone who has no sin of his own to pay for. Follow this with me for a moment. In Lord's Day 23, when we get to it, Lord willing, captures that thought so very well. There we read that God, God grants to me as if I had never sinned or been a sinner, 
God grants that to me because of the merits of the mediator. But he does not grant that to the mediator. That quality or that merit must be his already. We read then, this deliverer must be truly man and truly righteous man, a truly sinless man. He must be born of a woman under the law and without any sin. But as the catechism continues, we find that even that is insufficient. We read the question, why must he be also be truly God? And we hear the answer. We read it. So that by the power of his divinity, his divine nature, his divine being, he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness, sinlessness, and life. Understand well with me here. What we learn here is that a human nature, even a sinless human nature, could not bear the wrath of God against sin unless, unless the power of God makes that possible. In other words, only when being supported by, carried by, and strengthened by the divine power of God, only then will it be possible for the mediator to carry the punishment against sin. Allow me an illustration here, albeit a poor one. When someone was required to walk an extremely difficult road in life, we often hear them confessing that had it not been for their faith in God, it would have been impossible to carry their burden. They confessed that it was through the strength of their faith that they were able to do all things through him who strengthens them. It was their faith that saw them safely through that's how the consequences of sin are borne by the child of God. It is in that same way now that this mediator will not only need to be true and righteous man, he will also need to be divine. He will need to have the strength of God. In fact, he needs to be God in order to bear the wrath of God against the sin of man. And then finally, after 17 questions and answers of the hopelessness of man, now finally the catechism begins to reveal to us the way, the only way whereby men and women can be saved from the wrath and the anger of God. Who is this mediator, truly God, at the same time truly human and truly righteous? You knew the answer already, didn't you? Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ. And now finally the church confesses who this mediator is, why he has come, and how he has come to us. We hear it in the answer. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who was given us to set us completely free and restore us to righteousness and life. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who was given us to set us completely free and restore us to righteousness and life. People of God, here is held before our eyes the miracle of Christmas. Mary conceives and receives from God a child. A child born of our generation, like us in all things, yet sin accepted. And this child is truly human, born of the flesh and blood of Mary, Yet there's also something particular and unique about this child. 
God himself, through the angel, revealed it to Joseph. We hear it from the scriptures. Joseph, Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her <coughs> is of the Holy Spirit. She shall bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. This child that Mary would bear was truly human, born of a woman, but he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, meaning he was truly righteous, righteous meaning sinless, and he was also truly God. The miracle of the love of God revealed in the flesh, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, incomprehensible, indescribable, and yet worthy of all praise and glory. All praise be to God, who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. All praise be to God, glory to God in the highest for his Son, Jesus Christ. He is qualified to be our deliverer. Oh, indeed, he will suffer all of his life from moment to moment. He will suffer the wrath of God that burns against sin. As a man, he will suffer the anguish of God forsakenness. As a man, he will suffer death. As a man, he will experience the pangs of hell. But he will be able to arise victorious because, because, because he is God. Oh, we knew, we knew that the despair of Golgotha follows the glories after that despair the, follows the glorious miracle of Bethlehem. But, but from the grave of Joseph of Arimathea, we hear the angel, he's not here for he is risen. Who is this mediator? Our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, our great high priest who has revealed to us the counsel of God and who has revealed to us the way of redemption. Oh, he has opened paradise for us. That now was the great gift of God to mankind. He now was that great light shining in the darkness of whom Isaiah prophesied. And miracle of miracles, he was granted us. He was granted us out of the love of the Father's heart and solely out of his free gift of grace to us. Congregation, you and I, we, we need to be astounded by that news. We need to be ever mindful that he was the Father's gift the Christ is the greatest gift of the Father. After all, he was given us unto a complete redemption. And that gift includes not only eternal blessing, but also temporal blessing, meaning here and now. Do we not hear the scripture teaches that he was given us to wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and complete redemption? Given us to, given us to wisdom, it says. Oh, indeed, through him we become wise unto salvation. Thanks be to God, because now we have found, we have found the way to life. We have found the way to blessedness. Christ has revealed to us the counsel of God, and in grace we have understood that revelation. He's given us to righteousness. In other words, he was given us in order that we may be made right with God. That which alienated us from God, namely our sin, has been removed in him. People of God, he's become our substitute. 
God did not ignore our sin. Oh no, all of our sins, all of your sin, all of my sin were transferred onto him. He stood in your place and in my place before God's throne of judgment in order that you and I could be declared just and righteous. His perfect obedience to the law is credited to us. We now have been made right with God as if we had never sinned or had never been sinned through Jesus Christ. Then he was given us to sanctification. Our origin is again made whole and the life of the Christian is made new every day. The Christian is being transformed back into the image of the Father. He is being made holy. The radiance of Christ who now lives within our hearts begins to radiate from and give Christian color to all of our living. <clears throat> In other words, the child of God is being prepared to stand before the throne of God spotless, without blemish, without wrinkle or spot, and without terror. Contra this with me. On the one hand, as a person grows in his faith, or if you will, as he experiences Christ's sanctifying work in himself, the older he gets, the more he becomes convinced of the seriousness of the offenses of his sin. He begins to abhor himself more and more as the grace of God works in him. That's the first work of the Spirit. But at the same time, he becomes ever more convinced of the great forgiveness, forgiving love of God. My dear people of God, it is often happens that parishioners, church people, will confront their minister complaining, the sermons are too heavy on sin, Domine, and they're too light on grace and forgiveness. How can that possibly be? If you are only aware of slight sin in your life, then God's grace is equally small for you. You need only a little bit of grace to cover your little bit of sin. But when you are aware of the great burden of your sin, then God's grace becomes overwhelming for you. The more we become aware of the ever-increasing debt of our sin, the more we begin to glory in indescribable glory of the cross. It can be no other way. Christ given to sanctification. The new life is there already now and it grows daily. And then finally we read this question given us to redemption. Oh indeed the burden of the guilt of our sin has been removed but the child of God still walks on this earth. An earth with many trials, anxieties and temptations. A world with devils filled. And it is a life whose final enemy is still death. Each day again, there is pain, turmoil. And now we read he was given us to a complete redemption. Christ saves and he saves to the uttermost. <clears throat> Already here and now, he has rescued both body and soul. The redemption shall be complete. Nothing has been overlooked or neglected. He rescues us in this life and in the next. And in the fullness of time, that full redemption will be ours to all eternity. Oh, what a glorious gospel I am privileged to bring to you again for a second time today. But understand this well with me. One other thought needs to be captured in this question and answer. Who is this mediator? Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
The answer is deeply personal. That word, our Lord, as in our Lord, brings him into a personal relationship with us. Jesus Christ, our Lord, given us to wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and full redemption. Blessed then is he or she who calls him my Lord. Blessed is he or she who can say, he is given to me to wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Blessed is he or she who truly blessed are they who knows this mediator personally. For they are able to cry out with the psalmist, now how blessed is he whose trespass has freely been forgiven, whose sin is wholly covered before the sight of heaven. How blessed is he to whom the Lord will not impute his sin, who has a guileless spirit, whose heart now is pure within. Then finally, a few words about the last question and answer. After identifying this mediator, who is God and man, found in our Lord Jesus Christ, we're asked, how do you know all this? The answer can be very short. How do I know? The Bible tells me so. What a precious truth we teach our children when we teach them that song. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. How do I know? How do I know all these things about this mediator who is the Lord Jesus Christ? The Bible tells me so. In other words, it has been God himself who has given us the eyes of faith, enabling us to see Christ as the, as the only way home. How do we know that Christ has been given us personally to wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption? It has been revealed to us by God. We know it through the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit of God. How does the Spirit tell us? Oh, not through stirring subjective emotions. Oh, no, through the objective promises of God given us in the Bible. That's how we know that Christ was given us to complete redemption. It is the Spirit of God that has opened our eyes and hearts, enabling us to understand. As we read of Lydia in our scriptures, the Lord opened her heart, enabling her to understand the word spoken to her by Paul. God opens the hearts of men and women through the preaching of the gospel. Faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard is the word of God. Only through the word can we be made wise unto redemption. It is the power of God unto salvation. Throughout all of history, it has been so, and until the day of fullness, it shall remain so. To that end, the catechism points the way. Think with me to the first gospel proclamation. It was immediately after the fall in paradise. Immediately God spoke of one who had crushed the serpent's head. Throughout all of the ages, down through all of the centuries, that same message has been proclaimed from pulpits and mission fields of faithful churches around the world. Jesus Christ, the way, the only way. All of this is taught us in the Bible. How do you know? <clears throat> God has told us, and God has seen to it that that word would be maintained. It was first revealed in paradise. 
It was proclaimed and told by the patriarchs and the prophets. It was foreshadowed in the sacrifices and ceremonies and finally fulfilled in his only begotten son when the angels sang glory to God over the plains of Ephrata. Capture that with me. In the old dispensation, God saw to it that the promise of God would be revealed through the patriarchs and the prophets and through the sacrificial rites performed by the priests. They themselves did not see it, yet they proclaimed redemption in the promised coming Messiah. The Old Testament church heard the gospel. They believed and received full redemption. Then after many centuries, the promise is fulfilled in Bethlehem. It was witnessed and proclaimed by the apostles and the disciples, and God saw to it that the gospel was carefully guarded, correctly written down for the benefit of those who would follow throughout the ages from paradise until today. That same message has been brought. It has been brought to you again today. It has been my obligation and my great privilege to hold it before you. That treasure has been deposited with, with and is the possession of the church, the guardian of the word. Therefore, the church constantly reaches for her Bible, for only there <clears throat> can she find the way of full and free redemption in Jesus Christ. At the center of the gospel stands Jesus Christ, given us to wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. My dear precious people of God, we can picture in our minds, we can picture in our minds Adam and Noah and Moses and Abraham and Jacob and David, Isaiah, Malachi, Matthew, John, and even the apostles on the seven hills, all calling out that same glorious gospel of the promise of God revealed by God and given by God to us. It's still the same today. In the same way the church today, to the comfort and edification of God's people as well as in warning to those who are afar off, still today the church preaches that same message, that same gospel, Jesus Christ, the way, the only way, the only mediator, the only road that leads to God. Today is still the day of grace. There is still preaching from week to week. One day it will not be so anymore. Today in grace, the church still preaches of the manger in Bethlehem <clears throat> and of the cross on Golgotha. Blessed is he or she who is found in that gospel, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, given us as a free gift of grace out of the love of the Father's heart. Such a person has through the preaching of the gospel, learn to know that Christ has learned to know him personally and having come to know him has experienced the promise of Christ and now eagerly he or she longs for the fulfillment of that further promise. I shall come again to take you with me that you may be where I am also. Oh, Maranatha, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Haste the day that our faith in Christ may become sight. Shall we pray? Father, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. 
It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. Jesus, my shepherd, guardian, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring.